You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Hello everyone, good morning. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to welcome you yet personally, my name's Al, I'm one of the leaders here. If you're here for the very first time today, it's really lovely to meet you. It was great to meet uh, a French sister today. Where are you? Oh, hello, hello, stand up, give us all a wave. This is, this is Kate's French friend. Everyone say bonjour. There we go, don't let anybody tell you that the English are unfriendly. There we go. If you're here today and it's, maybe it's your first time in church, it's good to have you with us. Recognize that that's probably quite a big deal. If you wouldn't think of yourself as a churchgoer or I wouldn't identify as a Christian, um, then probably some things from today have seemed a little bit unusual to you. That's okay. If I turned up at a knitting club, I'd find things unusual too in the language. But maybe I would learn as I went along, if I went to a knitting club. So perhaps if there are things that you thought were a bit unusual today, maybe come and speak to me, speak to one of the people who've been leading this morning morning, we'd love to just have you to understand a little bit more about what's going on. Uh, It would be bad indeed if you felt somehow excluded from God and from the things of God because of just not understanding a little bit of language here and there. Well, anyway, uh, we're going to be looking today at Romans chapter 5 and verses 3 to 5. Last week, Uh, I preached on the first couple of verses from Romans 5, and uh, I decided that we'd do this as a two-parter, split it over two weeks uh, and look at it so we can kind of get into some of the details of the text uh, in uh, in these two Sundays together. This is the final sermon that I shall be preaching here until August. Hey, look, there's an R. That's quite good. Hey, thanks. Thanks, guys. Um, It's almost bringing a tear to my eye. Um, I'm going to be on sabbatical starting uh, the, the first week of April for three months, so uh, you will be in the capable hands of Mark and John and Pete and Pepe and Phil and the preaching team and others. So uh, I'm sure that God has got some really good things for you as a church, even as I'm on sabbatical and uh, entertaining uh, an antsy 10-year-old son for the first two weeks on the Easter holiday. So great to have a break. Um, so <laughs> we, will be, uh, we, will be, uh, we will be getting going with that in a, uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, okay, well, just to briefly recap then, uh, last week we were looking at the first couple of verses of Romans 5, and I picked out and highlighted four things that are vitally important for us as Christians. I mean, there's a lot more that we could say and recap, but we talked about justification by faith, being declared not guilty on one hand, but also then being credited with the righteousness of Jesus as a gift. And so it is both negative, we don't get what we do deserve, and it's positive. Something is credited to us, we're declared to be righteous. That leads to peace with God, an end of enmity with God. We stand, therefore, in grace, and we, sh- we share the hope of glory or sharing in the glory of God, which is a remarkable thing. If you'd like to, if you weren't here and you think, oh, that sounds interesting, um, even if you don't, actually, I'd recommend get on the website, have a listen, and maybe some of this morning's sermon will make more sense on the back of that. Now, we reflected last week that anybody can gain access to these blessings, but nobody can gain access to them 
apart from faith in the Lord Jesus. Okay? So completely open invitation. Anybody can access the blessings of God, but no one gets to enjoy them except through faith in the Lord Jesus. And so today we're going to spend our time in these last few verses, or these next few verses in Romans 5. What I'm going to do is read last week's text and today's as well, just to get a sense of the flow of it all. And then I'll pray and we'll kind of launch into this together. All good? Great stuff. So... Paul writes, therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Let's pray. Living God, we thank you for the gift of Scripture. We thank you for this God-breathed word, this word which you have breathed out and into, and indeed you breathe out of and into our hearts. We ask that you would Breathe fresh life into us today by the scriptures, through the Holy Spirit. May we be a people strengthened and built up and called deeper into worship and trust. Have mercy on any here this morning who wouldn't think of themselves as Christians. May you work in their hearts. May they be brought to know the riches of your wonderful love and the hope of glory as well. May they know your mercy and forgiveness. And may we together as a people be built up in the knowledge of God. Amen. Okay, I want to begin by getting super clear about something in this text. Paul, the author of this letter, it's a, the book of Romans, as we call it, is a letter written by an early Christian leader to a congregation or congregations in the city of Rome in the middle of the first century. Uh, Paul had never visited Rome, uh, so he, he writes to Rome because he's heard of their faith and he writes to encourage and strengthen the believers there. But there's something we need to be clear about. It sounds like Paul is saying that we should celebrate our sufferings, doesn't it? It's a little bit weird. He looks like a happy chap. Celebrate our sufferings? Well, in reality, that's not what the text says at all. Paul doesn't say that we should celebrate our sufferings. What he does say is that we should celebrate or boast or rejoice in our sufferings And that's a small but very important detail. The call of the Christian gospel would not be very good news at all if it was a call to Christian masochism. (laughs) Let's all celebrate every bad thing that happens. Oh, I've I've lost my job. Praise God, it's amazing. Oh, I've got a migraine. Yes. (laughs) I'm a Hull City supporter. Hallelujah. (laughs) Newcastle lost the cup. (laughs) Hallelujah. Sorry, Mark, I had to get it in somehow. No, it's not a call to celebrate our sufferings. 
It's a call to celebrate or rejoice or boast in our suffering. So an important question is, what kind of sufferings does Paul have in mind? Just any generic kind of suffering? Is it like the sufferings of supporting a rubbish football team or of having headaches or whatever it might be? Well, the Greek word that Paul uses is kind of a metaphor for pressure, trials, opposition, distress. And so it's kind of an all-encompassing word, sort of, but not entirely. Is Paul thinking about the time when you ran out of petrol on the motorway and had to walk 10 miles in the rain at night to a service station? Is that suffering for Paul, or is it just an inconvenience? Is Paul thinking about that time when the Wi-Fi went down, just as you were about to press pay on your... Thanks, darling. Uh, Just as you were about to press pay for your Glastonbury ticket. Or maybe when you didn't get the job, or when the house sale fell through, or when you had to cave in and start shopping at Aldi. It's come to us all, friends, hasn't it? The cost of living. Are those sufferings, or are they first world problems? Is there a difference between suffering and first world problems? Maybe not always. Possibly sometimes. Now, of course, Paul's not here. We can't wheel him in to judge what counts as suffering, to try and get out of him. Well, what was in your mind? And all kinds of scholars do try and get into the author's mind, which is impossible. Uh, But we can try and take careful account of what he says, what he's written. And maybe then we can make a reasonably well-educated guess based on what Paul's letter says. The word that Paul uses for sufferings is probably another one of those shorthand words that he uses. There's lots of them. There's words that sound nice and easy and pithy, but actually have this whole world of meaning and significance behind them, like the tip of an iceberg. You you get to see the bit above the surface, but there's this whole thing beneath the surface as well. When Paul talks about sufferings, he probably most likely has in mind the kind of sufferings that the Lord Jesus endured as he resisted temptation, as he was rejected by his very own people, as he was rejected perhaps even by his family, as he endured the cross, as he was mocked, beaten, endured people not believing him. He's most likely thinking about those kinds of sufferings, which are the kinds of sufferings that Christians face as they seek to live a life in this age that is faithful to God. Now, please don't hear what I'm not trying to say. I'm not trying to say that sickness and disappointment and heartache aren't painful and don't count. What I am trying to say, though, is that they are maybe not explicitly the kinds of things that Paul has in mind in this context, in the book of Romans, where very much he's talking about union with Jesus and sharing in Jesus, which means, for Paul, sharing in both his death and in his resurrection. You can't pick and choose and access the bits of Jesus' life that you want and not have the others. You have Jesus or you don't have Jesus. And so Paul very much sees suffering for a Christian as being a sharing and a participating to an extent in the sufferings 
of Jesus. Is it odd, though, that Paul can talk about rejoicing in hope of sharing the glory of God in Romans 5 verse 2, and then in almost the same breath, talk about rejoicing in suffering? It does seem to be a little bit of a gear crunch, doesn't it? I don't think it's strange at all. In fact, it makes perfect sense to speak about those things in close proximity if we understand that the glory of God has most clearly and obviously and publicly been displayed in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. That is the pinnacle, if you like, of the revelation of the glory of God. That's where we see his glory the most clearly. Now, we can think about glory as this ethereal thing, floaty, floaty around somewhere, and in some branches of the Christian church, the glory is a a, a glittery cloud, maybe with a kind of neat cinnamon fragrance that descends upon the meeting if we sing the right songs enough times. Or the glory of God is something that we just cannot know because it's out there somewhere and it's, you know, it, it can be triumphalism on one hand. Oh, it's all about the victory. He's like Aslan. It's the glory of God. And in reality, there are elements of the glory of God that are like that. The triumph of the king. Jesus now is like robed in radiant, glorious white with eyes like a blazing fire and feet like glowing bronze. And he stands as the one who has conquered. That's the Jesus whom we will see. But he's the same Jesus who has the wounds still in his hands and in his side. So glory is something that we understand as Christians through looking at Jesus. We see it most clearly presented to us in the cross. Now if, in the age to come, Christian believers are going to share in the glory that Jesus now has with the Father and the Holy Spirit, that's where we were last week, Believers will share the glory of God. If that is true, and it's all because we've been united with Jesus by faith, remember, then we will also undoubtedly share in his suffering glory now as we seek to be faithful believers in the present. Let me say it again. You can't pick and choose which aspect of Jesus you want to access. It's not like like a council project where you can access services. I'll have that bit, thanks, nice, but I don't need those ones. I'll have, I'll have the Jesus who is radiant and lion-like and glorious, but, but I don't really want the Jesus on the cross. That's a bit gruesome. That sounds a bit weak. And I don't want to look weak. I don't want God to look, oh, heaven forbid that God should look weak. I don't want God, how, how will people know that God is amazing, awesome? Insert your favorite adjective. How will they know if God looks weak? Oh, oh golly, that might look, that might, that might look bad, might like, reflect badly on God. If I'm weak, oh my goodness, that might reflect even worse on God. In weakness, God revealed his glory. 
Your weakness is a participation in the glory, the suffering glory of Jesus the Messiah. The gospel is not the get out of jail free card for suffering in this world. In fact, it's probably the guarantee. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. (laughs) Oh no, I see. Jesus Christ crucified for me. Oh, and he has promised you trouble. Doesn't, wouldn't be a number one, would it? It's Coldplay. Yeah, you are. Oh, goodness, I know I'm not that great a singer, but goodness, I thought, well, obviously. No, there's, tr- there's troubles. And the troubles are suffering, sharing the suffering glory of Jesus the Messiah. And Paul says that we, we boast. We boast in our sufferings. Wow. But it's not just that we boast in our sufferings. It's that we boast in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, etc., etc. That's interesting. I don't think for one moment that Paul is telling the believers in Rome something that they did not actually already know. The reason I think that is because he says knowing. He's not saying, listen guys, let me tell you something. He's saying, hey, we we know something. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. He's not suggesting some mind over matter technique that will enable the believers in Rome to float above it all. He's certainly not mansplaining. He's pastoring. He's writing to Christian believers who may be tempted to quit because, quite frankly, it's not easy to be a Christian in a world that hates your Lord and Master and therefore doesn't think too highly of you either. The temptation to quit when faced with the sufferings of this world as a participation in the sufferings of Jesus is insanely intense. In the Western world, we seek to anesthetize ourselves against sufferings. We don't like it. Nothing that we like less than feeling bad. And we will spend thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds and spend countless hours doing our utmost to ensure that we don't feel bad. Yeah, that's the drug of our time or the fear of our age. Oh, don't, don't feel bad. Whatever you do, you've got to make sure you feel your conflict. Oh, oh dear. Let's try and numb and satiate ourselves with extracurricular activities or religion or music or substances or whatever else it might be. Paul is pastoring the congregation in Rome because he and they know that the temptation to quit is strong. I think Paul is helping the church in Rome and then by extension the church in every age to do the demanding but necessary work of training yourself in a particular mindset, in in, in a particular way of seeing reality, 
that enables you to recognize suffering for what it is, to make sense of it, to understand it in the light of Christ. Paul's not promoting a kind of Christianity that turns people into brains on sticks. I could only find this to explain what I mean. This is a cartoon about a university professor speaking to a student. So there's the student on the left, how you see yourself, complex human being, hopes, dreams, aspirations. And there's the professor on the right. (laughs) How's the research? Just you're a brain on a stick. You know, you could maybe take the, the heading on the top one and say how most pastors see you or how some pastors see you. A brain on a stick. All you've got to do is fill the brain with more information, educate people more, and everything will be all right. And of course, that absolutely bears out, doesn't it, in the 21st century. Education has really done us a whole world of good, hasn't it? Filling people's minds with info has made the power of difference to the righteousness and goodness of the world. Hmm. Maybe, maybe not. Paul's not trying to turn people into brains on sticks. Christians who, whose knowledge basically amounts to having the correct answers. There's nothing more guiling, galling, galling, not guiling, nothing more galling than a Christian who just has all the right answers. You've probably met some. Maybe they're in your small group or your community. I'm really struggling with this at the moment. Well, that's all right because verse such and such and such as this is that. Knowledge, woo, all I have to do is quote a Bible verse and immediately everything becomes all right. That's brain on stick type Christianity. Paul's trying to remind the church and train the church in the way stuff works as a follower of Jesus. The terrain, if you like, the lay of the land. At the very least, he's trying to train them in how stuff can work for those who can receive it. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. How does Paul think this all works then? Well, the kind of Christian suffering that he is writing about, it does something in the life of a Christian. It produces endurance. The word for endurance is sometimes translated as patience or perseverance. And it has to do with holding firm to the right course of action, of living a particular way of life. Right? Notice not just believing the right things, but living a particular kind of life. In this context, we might say that it has to do with faithful Christian living in the face of opposition, whatever that might look like. We could say that a Christian is someone who rejoices in suffering, not rejoices in in their pain, but rejoices in suffering because it not only shows them that they are, in fact, on the right road, they're on the way of Jesus. If you think that suffering because you are a Christian shows you that this is the way of Jesus, then that is a cause for rejoicing. Oh, hallelujah. 
And I know it sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Because what we want to see as good late modern Westerners is progress. We want to see steps onward and upward as Christians. I want to grow in my knowledge and I want to grow in maturity. And I, as I grow in knowledge and maturity, everything in my life should get much more comfortable and much more easy and much more manageable. And I should be able to almost float above the problems that I experience in my life. Whereas the Christian vision of maturity and endurance is, wow, okay, I'm getting a shellacking because I worship Jesus and confess him as Lord. Praise God, that means that he re- I really am a believer in Jesus. Because if I share in his sufferings, wow, yes, then I must share in his glory as well. You see, it's not this awful anomaly that strikes Christians who are getting it wrong We rejoice in our sufferings because by the grace of God, they become evidence that we're on the right path, not the wrong path. This is radical because everything else in your experience and in the news and on social media will tell you absolutely not. And so the choice becomes, who do you listen to? Who do you believe Whose version of reality are you going to subscribe to and give allegiance to? King Jesus, who for our sakes became sin, suffered, died, and was raised and is now seated at the right hand of God, or the latest influencer who has made countless millions from making banal YouTube videos about things being satisfying? Ooh, what a waste! Suffering as a Christian produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And the word for character here describes someone who has endured and has been trained by their endurance and has been proved faithful. Now, I don't think this is a long way away from the idea of purification that we find in Proverbs. It's a metalwork metaphor in Proverbs. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Suffering, like the purifying process involved in metalwork, produces things in the life of those who endure it. Produces purity, strength. Burns away things that hinder Maybe you don't like the idea of God testing the heart. Ooh, God testing. God's just, I thought God's just good, isn't he? Isn't that what we seem to think about most of the gods? God's good. Well, yes, God is good. Of course he's good. And in his goodness, he purifies you because he loves you and because you are going to share in his glory. So for real, he's going to purify you. Do you think that your crap can share the glory of God? No. So what will he do? He'll purify you. And he'll purify you by allowing you in his goodness to walk the way of suffering in participation with the life of Jesus. Okay? For the believer who suffers and yet remains faithful, the outcome is hope. More specifically, as we saw last week, the hope of sharing the glory of God, not just any old hope. It's not the hope of, oh, fingers crossed, I hope I've backed the right horse attitude. 
Have the right religion? Did I pick right? Oh my goodness. All those wasted years in RE lessons. Oh, did I choose right? In fact, it might even be fair to say that without suffering and endurance and the character it produces, the version of hope we're left with is some kind of Christianized keep calm and carry on trope. Is that what you want the gospel to be? A gospel of keep calm and carry on? Oh, it's so limp. There's no hope in it. Keep calm and carry on. Oh, fantastic. Thanks, Lord, I think. Oh, help me today, Lord. Thank you. You died and you rose again and you ascended to the right hand of God to help me to keep calm and carry on. Wicked. Paul writes, hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Now, I want to confess a puzzle at this point. I've puzzled over this this week. The reason I've puzzled over it is because Paul says hope does not disappoint us. And that's bizarre. Why doesn't Paul say, in the context of talking about endurance and character and sharing the glory of God, why doesn't he say hope will not disappoint us? Surely that is more appropriate. You're talking about sharing future glory. Why not say hope will not disappoint us rather than hope does not disappoint us? What on earth is going on here, Paul? Again, we can't wheel him out to ask him his opinion, but we can try and make some educated guesses. Paul does say, hope doesn't disappoint us, does not disappoint us, because the Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts, but that doesn't necessarily automatically make it much clearer. That doesn't make it necessarily, oh yeah, well now I get it. Hope does not disappoint us because the Holy Spirit has been poured out. What's going on? Well, I decided, to, as you do, uh, to dig a bit into the Greek words that, uh, that Paul used in this passage, and I discovered this. The word for disappoint that Paul uses, actually, should we go back to it? Where is it? There we go. Hope does not disappoint us. The word for disappoint, in some translations, it's put to shame. Do you know there's only one other place that I saw in the New Testament where this word shows up? One other place. Anyone want to get, actually, no, I'm not going to take too long. Uh, the, the, the one other place where this shows up in the New Testament is in Matthew's Gospel. And it's in Matthew 26, right at the end, and it's where Peter is busy denying Jesus. And it's the third denial. It's the one just before, and uh uh-oh, that's my version of that story. Um, It's right right when Jesus is being tried by the Sanhedrin and questioned by the high priest, and Peter said, I will never deny you. And then here he is denying Jesus. And it says that he called a curse down on himself and said, I do not know him. And that's the same word that Paul uses when he talks about hope does not disappoint us. Now, that raises all kinds of questions. They seem to be like sort of semantically a long way away from each other. Ah, but not so fast. Because it's not always quite so straightforward as going and trying to sort of do a Tetris with words. No, that one fits like that. It's not always so easy. But conceptually, there are some things happening here that are really, really important. Could it be that unlike Peter, who denied Jesus at the critical moment, 
Hope does not deny us when the chips are down and the temptation to quit feels overwhelming. Is that the parallel? Is that the tension that Paul is flagging? Peter, under pressure, when questioned about knowing Jesus and being associated with just blew it all away and, and like dropped out on the whole thing and denied him at the critical moment. As a Christian in Rome, facing pressure and opposition and suffering and persecution because you worship Jesus as Lord, the danger and the temptation to drop out and to deny Jesus is immense. But hope does not deny or hinder or disappoint us Hope enables us as Christian believers to remain faithful exactly where Peter was not faithful. The Spirit of God enables you and me to be faithful in ways that Peter could not be. Hope does not disappoint us at the crunch moment where it matters the very most. More than that, Paul says hope does not disappoint us because the Holy Spirit or God's love has been poured out in our hearts. It's possible to take that verse and to translate it as meaning more that God has poured love for God into our hearts. And if we read it in that way, suddenly it begins to make an awful lot of sense. We endure sufferings and we rejoice in our sufferings because it produces endurance and character and hope. And hope doesn't disappoint us because God has put in us love for God. What it can mean is this, that when the chips are down, when you are the most tempted to quit, to deny Jesus, God has given you what you do not have yourself. And in actual fact, this is good orthodox Christian theological belief. God infuses in us what we don't have in ourselves. Love for him. God has given us love. Did you you think that love for God just grew naturally in you? No. God puts his spirit in us so that we love him, so that we don't deny him. So hope does not disappoint us at the moment when we are most pressed and most close to throwing it all in because it's too hard. God's spirit comes to us and puts in us what we don't naturally have in order that we might say yes to him even when the temptation to deny him is the strongest, namely when we are suffering and persecuted and oppressed. That's why I think Paul says that hope does not disappoint us. Oh, and there was a picture of Peter denying Jesus, by the way. <laughs> it's a Polaroid photo from the first century. Um, and that's that one. I forgot about these slides. Apologies. One of the marks of a true believer, then, is that they don't cave in when the temptation to run or to quit is strong. 
And that's not because they are strong. You're not, are you? Come on, be honest. Are we all turn up at church with game face on? Come on, do you think that, do you, do you think that I'm convinced? Do you think that I'd think, really, oh, God, oh, he's strong, great, Tom Marks. In Mark and I's office, the City Church League tables, you know, we've absolutely, had 100%, we've got it. Oh, I'm sorry, Beth, it's you again. We've got Beth Roderick into the Champions League places. Incredible performance, strong. Ugh. Pete, not so much, but, you know, like, Europa Conference, maybe. Of course not. Don't be fooled. We're not fooled. You're not fooled. Stop pretending. We're weak. But he's strong. Hallelujah. We suffer. That's our glory because it's his glory. Hallelujah. We're under pressure to quit and drop it all and leave because it's difficult worshipping a master who the world hates. Well, yeah, but the Spirit of God has put love for God in our hearts. Hallelujah. We don't have to go. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> You're enjoying it over there, aren't you? Oh, wonderful. Thank you lot. Come on. Remember, this is the last one. You don't get this for another three months. Show some appreciation. <laughs> Spirit gives us what we don't have. Now, there's questions that are not answered in all this. How does, how does all our suffering then, how does it produce hope in us? If it's something that produces hope, well, how does that work? Well, there's a hope that comes to us from God, and there is hope that is a human response to the hope that is put in us. It's never just divine action that kind of means that none of our actions count for anything. There is a, a faithful response, which is to hope. And when we hope and we trust and we believe and we persevere in the face of difficulty and suffering and persecution, it's an evidence of God's grace. And so no wonder we should celebrate it. No wonder we should rejoice. Ah, we're being made like him on the way to seeing him and sharing his glory. It's a beautiful thing. May it become for us, friends, evidence of the work of God in us as his people. May it become for us strengthening as we see that this is the Spirit's work among us. Now I know that you have all hoped for things in your life. I hoped she would get better. I hoped he would be the one. We hoped this would be the start of a family. I hoped my life would look different to this by now. I hoped I wouldn't be like him. I hoped I would feel content when I'd achieved that thing. You know, the things that you hope for in this world, friends, are tenuous at best. Clinging to hopes, desperate. But these hopes are not like the hope of sharing the glory of God. Hopes like these may and do disappoint us, mock us, shame us, because we can't control the outcome. We can't make it all happen. But the hope born of faith in Jesus, anchored in God's justifying grace, and tested and purified by trials, does not disappoint us. And the point of what Paul says is not to produce a man-up kind of macho spirituality. 
but to thoroughly emphasize the saving work of God that is grace from start to finish. Hope in that, friends. Lean on that, brothers and sisters. Learn to discern with Paul the pattern of life for the believer. Rejoicing in suffering because we participate in Christ. Producing a hope in the, of sharing the glory of God. Not trying to short circuit or shortcut, not trying to leapfrog the cross to somehow get to the resurrection. But owning, leaning in, celebrating, I must be in him because these things are happening as I seek to be faithful to him. Why don't we pray for a moment? Lord Jesus, none of us is sufficient for this. None of us is strong. None of us is wise or powerful. None of us is impressive. None of us has done enough to gain your saving attention as if you thought, oh, there's one that deserves it. Lord, all of us, to a person, are weak. And we confess that the world we live in just constantly seeks to distort our understanding of what reality is. And we thank you again at the end of this sermon for the gift of Scripture that profoundly and powerfully heralds something else. And thank you that because your spirit dwells in us, it does produce a witness in us as we hear these things. Lord, I believe it. I believe it, oh God. It's not just words spoken in the dark, but your spirit witnesses with us. Lord, we think, in fact, of how Paul goes on to speak in Romans 8 of sharing in Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. Please teach us, Lord, that our sufferings as Christians are not some strange anomaly, not some indication of not doing well, but remarkably and wonderfully an evidence of the grace of God that we've come to share in this one, our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered in weakness and has been raised with power. Thank you that we will share your glory if we persevere in you. And we believe you that we will because you've put your spirit in us and you've put, your, put love for you in us. Fill us again, Holy Spirit. Oh God, I pray for these next months as a church. Lord, I pray that you would nourish and bless and strengthen us in these things. Lord, may we learn what it is to walk this way with you. For our joy and for your glory. Amen.